Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. Last night began with the superintendent's report. Superintendent Skipper opened the meeting with a moment of silence for the loss of BPS students this past week in tragic accidents. It's terribly sad news. Yes, really sad. Jill, the meeting that moved on with the superintendent in her report talking about facilities. Now, Jill, you may recall there was an article in the Boston Globe last week where the headline was Boston public schools may close up to half of their school buildings. Right. So 60. 60, right. 50 to 60 schools. And Jill, then the next day after this articles, these articles were published, the superintendent was, was noted as saying to the school leaders in Boston, no, 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 that is not true. We're never going to close half the schools. Despite how things were reported in some of our local media, we are not planning to close half of our schools. And Jill, somewhere in there is the truth. And let's talk about this and, and this master facilities plan. The superintendent is saying we're not going to close half the schools, but these articles are saying it's, it's true. And, and really what was reported was this master facilities plan that the superintendent submitted to the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education at the end of last year. So we've been talking about that for a while right. as part of this the district improvement plan. And in that plan, it stated that there's these ranges of schools that may be closed. And so Basically, BPS said, we want to have bigger school buildings with more students in them that would have more programming in them. And one of the issues in Boston Public Schools is that our students, many of our buildings are not full. There's not a full cadre of programming. And so, therefore, students don't get the education that we want them to have. So that thinking completely makes sense. And she talked about that a little bit last night and the facilities plan was submitted to the state before the end of last year. Correct. And and now in that plan, Jill, it gives a range of school closures, but it doesn't talk about timeline. Correct. So nev- never says when. It doesn't talk about projections of students in the future, right? It's not based on any data of like, this is how many students we think we're going to have over the next 10 years. And it doesn't talk about budget at all. And it basically just says, hey, these are the range of schools we may merge and close. This is our ideal. We want to have more students in buildings. And that's kind of it. Right. And so one member in particular, Brandon Cardet Hernandez, really criticized the representation of that as a facilities plan. He talked about how that's not really a plan, but maybe a plan to plan. I don't know. It's like a plan to plan. And I guess I'm curious about some sort of like next steps in what people will see and then what we'll know. I guess specifically, when do we anticipate there'll be long-term projections for the district because it seems like that's a sort of critical piece of the puzzle. And then at what moment do we start developing a budget around the plan? So, Ross, you know, my takeaway from this is that there is some good news in this. Like the district has acknowledged that they're going to have to right size in order to meet future demands for the city, right. right? There's There must be looking at population projections that suggest that there's going to be a decreasing number of students in the future. They haven't made those public, but that must be their assumption if they're saying, okay, we need to close and merge schools and we've got schools that are, you know, half full and it sounds like they don't think that those schools will grow. So we can surmise some things, but there's no document that anyone can point to that has, you know, population expectations over the next two, 10 years or projections of any sort. And there's no overarching 
plan that says, here's what the district looks like today. Here's where all those students are. Here's where we think they're going to be in the future based on where we think families are going to be living of certain school-age kids. None of that is anywhere that anyone can tangibly access it publicly. And so I think that's where the criticism is coming in. But, but Jill, as you noted, there is some what we think is directionally correct movement in saying we need to do some things with consolidation of schools. Yeah. And I, I got to say, Jill, that in Boston, we've always had small schools, right? As a district, yeah. we've we've had much older buildings than other urban districts our size. And we almost have like double the number of buildings that other urban districts have because we haven't really built a whole lot of new buildings and yeah. we have very small schools. We're used to small schools. What the district is saying is we need to have larger schools. And how we get there, we don't know. Right. But they're at least saying we need to have larger schools. And they've said we need larger schools because that would be tied to 21st century education. Exactly. You need more square footage per child because you're talking about you know, facilitating things like collaborative learning and hands-on learning right. and things like that. So so all of these things are out there and have been talked about right. at different periods of time or have been surmised, but there is no, to Brandon Cardet Hernandez's point, plan. So member Cardet Hernandez is saying we need the numbers and when you basically are going to put forward a number of closures or mergers each year to us, as you have done in the spring, we want to actually have a plan to base those decisions on. So in response to this, the superintendent and Delaverne Stanislas, who's the chief of capital planning, said last night that the plan is to be out in the community. You know, because I think another thing that the district is hearing is you need to have community involvement. Well, community involvement, again, is not a plan. Maybe it's a marketing communications plan. It's not a facilities plan. It's smart to be out in the community. They now have, you know, something to facilitate conversations. They have this rubric, which is not a plan. It's a tool. And so it almost, I don't know if they were talking past each other or everyone is sort of acknowledging there isn't a plan, but there's all these components of things that we will do. I think the biggest problem in all of this com comes a little bit later when, you know, there's, you know, they talk about, how are we going to make decisions around this? And so I'm so curious, Ross, having been in the district for a long time, why is it, why is there this avoidance of producing a master facilities plan, do you think? Because then you would indicate to people that, they're, that they may, their school may close or merge and you essentially incite them to go out and, and advocate on behalf of their school community. There's this perception that there always has to be this public dance that you, you can say Correct. the right number of things to maintain balance. And then when you're going to take action, you almost have to just go, insert it by Quick, quickly. Right. 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 I wonder what. if that actually is true. Like, has anyone ever tested that? Is there any district around the country who has actually laid out a plan for the whole district and then operated to the plan and been able to talk to the public about why this is important for the whole. I, I think that's a good point. I mean, we I've definitely had experience where we've laid out a plan yeah. too early mm. and you give time for school communities to advocate yeah. and ultimately that plan changes. Yeah. Um, so if you're willing, I, I don't think there's ever a time, Jill, where you lay out a plan and, and say you're going to listen to public input over a period of time and then, and then ignore the public input. If you really are going to listen, your plan's going to change. Mm. Um, Jill, there's two points that are really important to note here. Typically, when you close or merge a school and you have a student in, in, in one of the, the close or merge school, mm -hmm. the best way for you to do that is to give the student a better experience at a nicer facility. Yeah. Okay. Right. And what we know about how BPS works and Massachusetts works is that if you're using MSBA, Mass School Building Authority funding, and that planning process, it can take up to 10 years 
to build a new school building. Right. So BPS on one hand is saying we must close and merge schools and we're gonna make decisions every spring about doing so. And we're gonna build new schools. I can tell you, Jill, if it takes 10 years to build a new school, yeah. it's gonna take a re- decades yeah. for our families to go into new, better facilities. Right. And so the question is, are we gonna be closing and merging schools without brand new facilities? I think the answer is yes. Right. And how will families respond to that if their child does not get a better education? Yeah, and I think the other problem with that is that if you're not anticipating a certain set of things, then you you can't budget for those. You can't go find budget for those. And so, you know, you you almost end up always doing this in a piecemeal way, totally. which causes a lot of consternation. And Jill, one other part of this that's really important is that the school choice season has started. Yeah. So January 4th is when families started to choose schools for their kids going forward. Mm-hmm. And if school closures and mergers are going to be announced each spring, that's always after the school choice process begins. And so we really should be giving families the opportunity to understand what's going to be happening before they make choices. So maybe the best case scenario is to at least have a plan about when and how to communicate about these things, yeah, right? Yeah, and give, I mean, give parents the certainty that they deserve in yeah. making choices. And you could still contextualize it within population growth and neighborhood growth, you know, and where you're seeing families with kids actually living in the city. So moving right along, Superintendent Skipper also talked last night about an announcement that Mayor Wu had made during her State of the City address on Tuesday. She talked about the BCLA, the McCormick, and UMass Boston in partnership. Here's the superintendent talking about this collaboration. I was particularly happy for BCLA McCormick. I think, you know, we have a lot of repair work to do in our district with communities where we've made past promises and then not been able to fulfill them. And I think BCLA McCormick was, uh, is, is a very good example of that. I was, you know, uh, being able to work and, and see UMass's openness as a university and the chancellor's leadership with the mayor on this to really be able to create a model that hasn't existed here before. Uh, in fact, in Massachusetts, at the depth that we're talking about, where really you have UMass staff being able to work in the school in partnership and the BCLA McCormick being able to all learn from one another as staff members, but also for the students to have really the ability that as they um, you know come up through BCLA McCormick, just that clear pathway. So this is a very nice announcement. Ross seems to have a lot of promise, right? You can perceive, you can like kind of think about what might come here, but I didn't see any specifics. Did you see any specifics about this announcement? No, Jill. I mean, I, I was looking for a, like an MOU or some some plan that was written about this. I was wondering, you know, is this part of an early college initiative? Is Are they building a new building on the college campus? Right. Are students from the BCLA McCormick now going to take classes at UMass Boston? Is this, you know, part of the early college initiative? I, I, was, I have a lot of wonderings about what this means, but we saw we saw the announcement, we heard the announcement, but we heard very few details. But it sounds like an interesting idea. Yeah, no operating plan, no real knowledge on who's involved in making this happen. It's also interesting that there was no carryover from all of the conversations and announcements that Mayor Wu made last year about Madison Park. Yeah, and peculiar. And the O'Brien. <laughs> right, right, and right, so that we've right. got all these, like, there's a lot of announcements yeah, yeah. about the district, big announcements. Yeah, I'm so curious as, like, where are we on the complete renovation and and rebuilding of Madison Park High School, moving the O'Brien to West Roxbury Academy. Like that seems to be, that was a a conversation for months from the city about this is what we're doing to improve education in Boston. And now all of a sudden that's not part of the conversation anymore. 
But now here's another sparkly idea. You know, which one are they both going to happen? And if so, where's the details? Where's the timeline? Where's a community input into that? Yeah. And where's the grounding of the story in the reality? We heard reference to that last night when Vice Chair Michael O'Neill asked about the McCormick and whether or not it now has adult sized toilets or lockers that are big enough to hold teen backpacks. So that's a start, but there's also work that could be done at the building now, even if they're gonna get a complete renovation, like lockers, like an adult bathroom. I mean, just so minor little stuff, but makes all the difference as we know. And I, and I hope that process continues even as we get a facilities manager and start to do a project plan, et cetera. Yeah. So, you know, there. I guess this is the difference, right? Like the announcement, which is big and shiny, like you said, versus the reality of turning it into actual substance for students. Yeah. Like, where's the budget? Where's the plan? What is it? All those things. If I was a student at the Dever McCormick, I would be wondering, sounds interesting. How is it going to change my life tomorrow, next week, or in a few years? Right. Jill, immediately moved on to public comment, where longtime education advocate, John Mudd, echoed this point. I was surprised to see that the issue of the master facilities plan is not on the agenda today. The school committee is again allowing itself to be sidelined and marginalized. Let's be clear. You don't have an actual master facilities plan after 18 months and a reported $3 million contract. The so-called long-term facilities plan does not show what is being planned for specific schools in each neighborhood. It continues the past ad hoc piecemeal approach by providing for individual annual proposals for years to come without having an overall district plan as the context in which these decisions should be made. Parents and stakeholders have objected to this approach for many years. BPS has submitted a plan without enrollment projections, without a budget, and without the specifics and timelines for mergers, closures, renovations, and new builds. It's always good to hear from from John Jill. He is basically saying, what is the long-term facilities plan here? Where's the stakeholder engagement? And questioning a lot. And John tends to be right on. So. Sort of clarifying what Brandon Cardet Hernandez said earlier. Exactly. Like with, exactly. with more with more details. So Jill also in public comment last night, about a third of the public comments were about the Gardner Pilot School. We talked about this in our last podcast, and again, the school leader has been placed on leave. Last night, we heard from teachers and parents and community members saying, we have no details. Nobody's talked to us. There seems to be something going on. <laughs> Why are principals on leave? But this is causing great uncertainty, and this seems to be the theme of the meeting yeah. at, at the Gardner School. And can someone help us clarify what's going on at our school? When will we have a school leader what will that look like? Yeah, you can imagine the consternation that's causing. I mean, this is the school that won the School in the Move prize yeah, last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. I and, mean, uh, and now their head has been pulled and, and no one has any details about it. Yeah, and uh, so, of course, the rumor mill has gone wild. It's really unfortunate. But, but one of the teachers involved. last night in public comment, Jill, said, uh, I think you know, she said at the beginning of this year, the district leadership was bringing all these other schools to visit us and to look at our best practices. Yeah. And in the middle of the year, our school's now in disarray. Right. Um, and you guys did this. To yeah. us. You, you placed our principal And why did you why? do it? Right. It seems like they deserve some answers. Another third of comments last night were for the proposal to modify the exam school admissions policy. And there was a vote on that last night. 
there was one thread where we heard from students who are concerned that this change will prevent them from getting enough points to get in purely because of where they live, even though they are economically disadvantaged and may live in low income housing, which is inside of a high income tier. We live below the poverty line and live in a house with no bonus points. My mom works and takes care of me and my brother who has autism. I have been studying very hard because I have a goal, which is to go to one of the exam schools. Yet exam schools tier grouping has totally ruined my goal because my home address has dragged me to tier seven. I feel that because my home address, I feel that based on my family's income, I should be in a tier that can add more points to my background, not tier seven. I heard about exam schools when I was in second grade. From that time on, I told myself I want to go there and will work hard to get good grades so I can go to one of the schools. In fact, I did and continued to get good grades. The recent exam school's school policy added only four points to tier seven has almost crushed my dream. The tier policy says the tier with the lowest socioeconomic scores will go first in each round. That sounds like a lie to me because I am also from a low socioeconomic family and yet I don't think I'll get the low socioeconomic scores. Well, Jill, this is a real issue that needs to be addressed. And I believe this is what Mr. Cardot Hernandez has been pushing on for, for a long time now. Yeah. You know, yeah. Points going to the kids. Um, we also heard from parents who feel that changing the policy now in January after school choices began is too late and doesn't give them enough time to figure out alternative plans should their child not get into a school that they thought they would get into. This is a significant policy change. Um, This is gonna impact 164 kids. It is not a minor change as of last year. And it in tier seven and eight is it is going to completely upend the competitive balance. That's where you're gonna see all the changes. And the implementation would impact our oldest kid um, and we're not alone in it, clearly from the, the comments that you've heard so far. Taking away that two extra points means that she won't get um, the opportunity, possibly of going to an exam school. And we are past the time of trying to figure out alternatives. That time was Thank back you, in no. the fall, if we wanted Thank to you. do that. So there's some public perception that, and it was represented in the last comment, that this is a significant policy change. We weren't hearing that from the district last night. The superintendent and several school committee members represented exactly the opposite last night That when they kicked off the vote on proposed changes for the policy. Here's Superintendent Skipper. The option I'm recommending is a minor adjustment. This change would go into effect for 2024-25 admissions process. We recognize that it's late in the academic year for changes. Based on last year's data, approximately 6% of all seventh grade applicants would have seen a change in whether or not they received an invitation to an exam school. We looked for a narrow tweak to the policy that could fix this problem and ensure that all students, no matter what socioeconomic tier of Boston you live in, and no matter what school you attend, have the chance of receiving an invitation to all schools. So, Jill, this minor major change right. uh, that we talked about. And I guess it's all in perception. <laughs> right, right. Right. If it impacts your child, it is major. Yeah. We talked about this in our last podcast, Jill. As a reminder, Superintendent Skipper's recommendation from the last meeting 
was that instead of giving Title I schools, these are schools with students of 40% or more students living in poverty, in every tier, 10 bonus points. So, so Title I schools getting 10 bonus points. Each tier would receive a unique number of bonus points for students going to Title I schools based on the point differential in that tier between the composite scores of Title I and non-Title I schools in the previous years. Which actually solves for, and I think that member Mr. Tran sort of referenced this, this solves a legal issue that the district has ultimately. Prior, and I'll give one example of this. In in last year's entry data, you needed to have 100.1 if you're in tier seven, composite score, to get into Boston Latin School. And students who did not receive the 10 bonus points in non-Title I schools could only get to 100. So it was impossible for them to get into BLS. Yeah. Now, in this new policy change, students in Tier 7 would receive, in Title I schools, receive four bonus points, not 10. And that lowers the composite threshold, potentially, to get into BLS to 97 point something. Right. So now there's a chance that every student could get into Boston Latin School. And as Mr. Tram pointed out, it eliminates the impossibility and therefore potential legal threat. Right. So at the last meeting, member Brandon Cardet Hernandez had expressed uh, frustration when he had heard the recommendation for the change in policy. And, you know, he said, he was frustrated that his recommendation, he, he had offered up this idea that you just give points directly to economically disadvantaged students and that that would really solve the issue of making sure that the policy touched every student, especially the ones that the district was trying to touch or trying, you know, trying to change the pathways for. And so he was very frustrated that that wasn't even on the list of ideas that had been considered by the district, even though he'd been advocating for it for some time. And so this was his reaction last night, right before the school committee went to vote on this issue. I'm like struggling with how to feel about this, the situation, mostly because I think it's like slightly textbook that we're here and we're hearing from families like this feels really late. And we raised concerns on this, I raised concerns that if we waited, this would be exactly the conversation we'd be having. But we went down a journey where, which is sort of terrifying, where we were like, we can't legally change the policy for five years, which is like democracy at its worst, right? Like I'm from Cuban parents who fled communism, like that no policy can change is sort of wild. We then eventually got to the truth, right? Like we can change the policy, obviously, like that's what we do. And the options on the table were the ones that got discussed. I, The one that I proposed, and we heard other folks propose as well, did, was clearly not considered. I guess two things, I think. I, I don't, I'm like so lost in what to do on this vote, but I do, I guess two things. One... And I'm not even sure I'm being really transparent. I don't trust that anything, that m- many things that we'll, we say we'll do later, we actually do. And so I hope we can change that. But I hope two things are true here. One is that there is a continued evaluation of some of the other suggestions that have come forward around the potential policy change, including f- identifying ways to make sure that economically disadvantaged students at schools 
that do not have higher concentrations of economically disadvantaged students still mm -hmm. receive that type of credit to their composite score. I think the second is this analysis of the tiers. Seven is big. We have cities that are much larger, like Chicago, who do tiered systems and have less tiers. And an analysis of that. I don't think it is worth waiting five years. So Jill, I, one, I think it's really important that we play all of what Mr. Credit Hernandez said, because he said a lot. Yeah. He was really clear that he's been asking for something to be done here since last summer, since June. And so first of all, this change is happening really late while school choice season has already begun. Second, this policy recommendation doesn't address the concern that the points don't go directly to those students who they are meant to benefit from them. And third, the tier system itself should be reevaluated and that they shouldn't wait any longer to do so. And Jill, I really want to point out something that was that I, that Mr. Credit Hernandez started with. He started with saying, you told us that this policy could not be changed for five years. And here we are changing the policy. And I would just note that looking at this from the balcony, that school committee members must bring up issues every meeting. And if they do, eventually somebody will hear them. But we've seen so many examples of this where school committee members ask questions and don't follow up. On this one, Jill, school committee members asked questions and followed up every meeting mm -hmm. to the point of discomfort. Mm -hmm. And finally, the school system did something. Right. And this is an example of if you care as a school committee member, you really got to be tenacious in getting to the end. And this did, still didn't get to the end that Mr. Cardenan has wanted and is the right way to do this, right, which is give points to the kids. But it got somewhere and it showed that they could change the policy and that what they were saying was not true. But you could tell that there were many school committee members who wanted to make sure that they expressed that they were with Mr. Cardet Hernandez in spirit. You know, and they all sort of gave him a nod in different ways to the fact that this didn't address the solution that he wanted to see and that it never even was put on the table and that they also were going to support this recommendation because it did solve for a problem that they had as a school committee. And so you do have to wonder if this is just going to keep coming back. Like, you know, if there's uh, going to be a constant conversation about While you have winners and losers yeah. in a school system, it will keep coming back. So, Ross, this issue of tears is something that Brandon Carnett Hernandez brought up. We hear about it a lot from the parent community in public comment. There's been discussion of tears, you know, throughout, you know, since this recommendation was made initially and approved, you know, changing the policy. What's the big deal? Sure. So, so Jill, on tiers, remember there's eight tiers. There's 125 seats essentially per tier. At some tiers and the lower tiers, there's essentially almost the same number of applicants to exam schools as there are seats available. And then at the upper tiers and tiers seven and eight, six, seven and eight, there are many, many more applicants than there are seats available, therefore leading to the, the importance of these points conversation. Yeah. And now, Jill, parents are all logging in to the BPS school choice system, which opened up on January 4th. And they're looking at where they are and what tier they live in. And in fact, so many parents are looking at it and saying, my tier has changed. Yeah. So you're hearing that in the community. Hundreds. I mean, what we what we know, I mean, even BPS even published this on their website. It, it, I think there's 206 census tracts in Boston public schools, in, part of this tier system. Mm -hmm. And I think it was 94 that changed. 
so 94, so parents logged in and 94 census tracts out of 206 or something like that changed. So almost, almost half changed. So parents from go last in, year to this from year, from last year to this year. And what they do is every two years, they get new data mm-hmm. from a sampling system. And essentially it gives you new information that assigns parents to a tier. And so some parents who may have been in tier four, for example, the likelihood of you getting into an exam school is very high. Mm-hmm. If you live in that tier, you may have been moved to tier seven, right? So some, there, there's as much movement of three tiers for families, creating a lot of uncertainty around what their options are. Right. This is so confusing. It is very confusing, right? So tiers are confusing and points are confusing. This whole exam school policy is convoluted and confusing. What BPS did last night at the meeting was change the points and allow for more students at the upper tiers without points to get in. Right. What they Which, did- but, but all that does is solve for the fact that those, those kids didn't have access to certain schools and that's not legal. Right, and now some families won't get in. Right, and who would have fam- gotten in? Who would have gotten in, and right? So in you're just replacing- And in addition to that, there are new tiers. Like your tier from last year may not be your tier from this year. Totally. So if you had a child who applied to the exam schools last year, for example, you might have applied with a calculus that assumed a different tier than if you're applying this year. Totally. And your certainty. And, and Jill, I mean, all of this is really important because- You, you know, you, the district should really publish a calculator. But on this, Jill, like the the timing is really important to this of too. So for families who are looking at other options, those deadlines are now. Right. And now they're kind of like, oh my goodness, you! I didn't realize you changed my tier and now you're adjusting the points. And now the likelihood of my student getting into one of these schools is, has gone down significantly. Like I would have, maybe I would have applied to a private school or totally. to the MetGo program or to a charter school if, if I, I had known. known that, right. And then BPS to pretend that, well, we've been discussing this at school committee so you, for months is ridiculous because well, one, they were saying they weren't going to change anything. And two, who listens to school committee? Well, and by the way, the largest advocate for this was advocating for something that never got even got put right. on the table. So if you were listening and paying attention, you're like, that's never going to happen. Or, okay, well, maybe I'll do my calculus based on his suggestion because that makes sense. Yeah. So, so Jill, the, the, the uncertainty that this is causing is profound. Yeah. And it can't be underestimated. I'm confused. Well, the school committee did vote unanimously in favor of that change. So the policy, the exam school policy has now been changed. Jill, there are two other brief reports last night that we should touch upon. And let me just do a quick summary of those reports. The first was on Up Academy Boston. Basically, Up Academy Boston has gone from a an enrollment of about 500 kids in 2019. That has now dropped to about 130 kids because this is a middle school and middle grade schools have mostly been phased out. And so the proposal here is we're going to essentially be, merge Up Academy Boston with Up Academy Dorchester. And there wasn't many questions about this. It makes sense. This is a clear merger with uh, school communities that are very much aligned in their instruction and culture. And then, Jill, <laughs> this is really interesting. Brief presentation last night by Chair Robinson, which was essentially saying, hey, let's make task force report to the superintendent mm-hmm. and not have them any longer report to the school committee. Mm-hmm. And so essentially moving the authority of task force from reporting to the public and school committee to moving them under the superintendent at her discretion and direction. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things that this makes me wonder. Whose idea was that? Why? Are they making that change? And, you know, the chair who just talked about 
how the the importance of making things happen in elementary schools, middle schools, and making more high schools viable options for our students. This this is the proposal that goes on the table. It's like, <laughs> let's move task forces under the superintendent. Well, I, I think this is in general reaction to the ELL task force members resigning. Of course. And they're like, well, okay, we can't have high profile task force anymore. Right. Let's not make them high profile. And then let's put them, bury them under the superintendent. But you, you can't make a speech about how you want to see dramatic change come from an organization that you run and then put something like this you on also, the table in the same in the same meeting, 20 right? minutes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you have a member begging the superintendent to make a change in a policy for months and months and months and ignoring him. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're subjugating your authority from school committee to the superintendent. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Not when you like think about the kids in the city and how many of them go to unbelievably low-performing schools and what they get out of that. Yeah, you should. We should have more task forces at the, at the school committee level. Jill, let me take a shot at summarizing this meeting. And and really, the theme that comes up to me is is uncertainty. Parents and kids are picking schools right now, but BPS is creating amazing uncertainty for families. Their families are wondering, will my school be on the list to close this coming spring? Families are wondering, how many points is my student going to get to help them enter into an exam school? What is the likelihood of my student getting into an exam school now that they've changed the points? Families are wondering, why is my tier changing? I didn't move. The conditions are the same in my neighborhood. Why did you change my tier? And how does that impact my child's exam school admission chances? Families, Jill, we haven't talked about this, but they're also wondering about the school quality framework. This is still in flux, Jill. The superintendent noted this in her public comment that they're still looking into it, but the list of schools is dictated by the school quality framework and Boston Public Schools has fundamentally changed the school quality framework and right. assigned schools new school quality tiers, which affects parents' choices. But Jill, it seems like what parents have, given the lack of certainty in the district, is each other to rely upon trying to decipher on their own what this all means and how to navigate this incredibly complex educational system. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. We want to hear from you. If you have thoughts or concerns about how BPS is serving your students, please send an email to us at podcast at shawfoundation.org. That's S-H-A-H foundation.org. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. And come back next week for our latest deep dive, where we speak with experts about how public school districts can pivot in the face of historic enrollment declines. Have a great day.